When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Oi, oi, this is Owen Jones, and I am sitting in my living room, surrounded by some takeaway curry, which my cats are now trying to scavenge, little wide-eyed care. But more importantly, even than my own beloved cats, the feline epicenter of my existence, there is none other than the hero, the, the, I would say the Rosa Luxemburg of our time, Ellie made Lydia O'Hagan. Hello. Do you know that in um, you signed a copy of Chavs for my dad and you said, thank you for raising this generation's Rosa Luxemburg in the copy and he was very moved. Consistent about it, you see? Yeah. Little Rosa. Yeah. My, my twin sister named her cat after Rosa Luxemburg. My bike is called Rosa. You've named your bike? After Rosa Luxemburg, Rosa Parks, and because uh, it's red. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's weird calling your bike something. Well, so if you, know, you lose, we've your, been through a lot together. If your bike gets nicked, will you be in the streets yelling, Rosa, Rosa, <laughs> where are you? Well, that, is that what you'll do? Well, this week I managed to like, lock my bike lock to my bike, lose my keys, spend a three-figure sum <laughs> on a new bike lock and then um, find my keys again. I followed so. this drama on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I did. I live tweeted the whole thing. I felt a bit of pity, but also kind of, kind of amused a bit. Is that bad? And let's face it, with your track record, probably a bit of smugness and relief that you're not the only one. <laughs> Stuff like that. I actually had my bike nicked back in May, and they they use they uh, what's it called the um, really oh god what is it called like a hacksaw no it's like, like an angle grinder angle grinder and they plugged it into the local estate they actually used the mains to undo it. I mean that they almost deserve the bike. To I be thought I, part of me did kind of think that without sanctioning the theft of my bike. So right, um, speaking kind of. of Bikes, bikes. Speaking of environmentally uh, friendly things. So, climate debate. Firstly, on Channel 4 News, uh, which we watched, though, Boris Johnson, did he know a turn up? He did not. But a, an ice sculpture in the shape of the, uh, the globe with the, the Conservatives emblazoned on it <laughs> was there. Made a show. And apparently, like, his dad was in the green room. No, he, he sent his dad to replace him. Well, as I just commented on Twitter... Can you imagine the news stories if Jeremy Corbyn sent his dad to a leaders' debate instead of Boris Johnson? It would be like, this man is not fit for office. He's got something wrong with him. And literally, that would be the election over. It really would be. What was good, though, is, and I want to pay tribute to someone called Izzy Warren. She's a 15-year-old environmental activist. She's been one of the leaders of the UK Student Climate Network doing all the big youth strikes and all the rest. And she challenged Michael Gove in the green room. She gave him a good old kicking. More of a kicking than a lot of the media's managed to do. Um, I mean, before we carry on as well, this whole... Because uh, there's this shtick about Andrew Neil. So uh, we start with Andrew Neil, will we? Yeah, and then we'll do the, quickly the climate debate and we'll explain why it's quick. Yes. 
Um, Andrew Neil, so we are talking about the fact that uh, Jeremy Corbyn did a Andrew Neil interview to, let's say, mixed reviews, <laughs> and then and then, um, and and then Boris Johnson didn't. And am I right in saying that the BBC told the Labour Party that it was in the bag with Boris Johnson and that yeah, was part um, why they agreed? They said it was going to be next week, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, the BBC, look, I know when people criticise the BBC and its uh, problems from the left, people kind of give you this, you're a tin, tin foil hat wearing crank kind of vibe. And it hasn't helped by there have been quite sometimes people who are a bit you know, not helpful in their criticisms. But the BBC is very problematic for lots of reasons. Uh, I've written a lot about that. And um, they are behaving, even despite their systemic problems, uh, whether it be framed by the coverage of the right-wing press, who obviously dominate the media ecosystem in terms of their news priorities on a daily basis. Uh, in terms of um, one senior BBC presenter described the, the centre of gravity politically, the BBC is basically Blairite, socially liberal. I mean, yeah, anyone liberal. who's met any senior managers at the BBC or senior editors, well, I mean, we know that. When when I've done, I'm sure it's the same view when you do political programmes, you, yeah. you meet senior figures at the BBC, and, and yes, that is... That's consistent with my experience. Exactly. So, and they are not, yeah, not so keen on the left. But they, um, I'm, I'm genuinely quite perturbed by their um, coverage of this. They, they Yesterday, BBC Politics, so BBC Politics uh, did a tweet of Boris Johnson uh, eating a scone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the story. It was him eating a scone yeah. and laughing and giggling about it. I mean, I think North Korea's official state news agency might find that a little bit far, a little bit cringe. Look, I'm on record, I, I, you know, as saying I've written pieces about this where I actually hate it when the left blames the media for all of its problems because I think that a a hostile media landscape is a permanent condition for the left and Mm -hmm. it needs to stop bitching about it and start thinking about how to get around that. So I'm not speaking from the point of view of somebody who is precious about media bias. I sort of accept that the left has a harder job with these things, and I think we need to work within that. So, but having said that, I actually have been astonished with this election campaign in terms of the press coverage. You know, in 2017, the press coverage was positively rabid about Labour, but that was the sort of, that was the print media. You know, that was things like the Daily Mail and... That wasn't that surprising. But this this election, genuinely, the Sky News has outperformed the BBC mm-hmm. um, in terms of the sort of balance of coverage. And, you know, Labour figures have had a tough time with Sky, but so have the Tories mm. and so have the Lib Dems. Mm. Whereas the BBC seems to have made a series of quote-unquote mistakes that coincidentally make things more difficult for Labour and easier for the Tories. Like editing out, for example, laughter and ridicule of Boris Johnson in the debates and their news coverage, which they then said was a mistake. But again, those mistakes always seem to go one way. Yeah, and I think, you know, I actually believe that it probably was a mistake in the sense that I don't think that there was some kind of editor sitting in a BBC newsroom kind of cackling evilly, deciding to deliberately edit things to make the Tories look good and Labour look bad. I think it is a reflection of the kind of monoculture in the BBC mm-hmm. and the fact that it is culturally, like, yeah, kind of Blairite, I guess, um, that sort of leads to this, like, co- like a kind of institutional hostility towards mm-hmm. the Labour Party. And I think that as our public 
service broadcaster, it has an obligation to do better, particularly because there was a 70-year-old canvasser assaulted um, the other day. Pfizer Shaheen tweeted this evening that one of her canvassers was attacked in front of his six-year-old daughter. And the first one was doubts. They were like, you're a Marxist, you're a Trotskyist, you're etc. Yeah. And she was thrown a set. She was suspected broken ribs as a consequence. Yeah, and a, um, a friend of mine who did tweet about this, but I will keep him anonymous, so I don't think he wants to make, have a big deal made out of it, but he was wearing some clothes with the Labour Party logo on them and, and, and the tube, and he got sort of, um, like, harassed by somebody, you know. So I think the sort of delegitimization of the left in public life actually does have material consequences, and I think... Well, it's traitors and people who hate their own country and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the BBC has an obligation, which clearly Rickman agrees with, mm-hmm. to treat the left fairly, to treat the left as a legitimate actor in public life. And I think um, it's also illogical... Uh, for the BBC to do this in a purely um, self-interested way because generally speaking, the liberals and the left are defenders of the BBC against the right who do want to dismantle it so they can replace it with a kind of Fox News Mm -hmm. ecosystem like we have in the States. You know, if if the left en masse and liberals lose faith in the BBC the right are not going to come to its defence. No, they're going to chop up into little pieces. Yeah, so I don't... So I think if you look at it from a self-interested perspective, it's completely Mm. stupid of the BBC to alienate. But the the thing is, it's quite a menace, is that... So the Tories, at the moment, they have virtually all the press, not just on their side, but hysterically on their side, acting as de facto campaigning organisations. They've got the BBC behaving like a government um, uh, broadcaster. And... They also now are talking about, uh, because of what happened in the Channel 4 debate, uh, reviewing its public broadcast licence. I mean, that is... I've been to Hungary. I've interviewed people in Hungary, which is a country which has descended into authoritarian, uh, you know, kind of autocracy, really. Uh, it pretends it's still a democracy. It's got all the trappings, you know, but... It, but the, the Sorry, that's me uh, drinking wine. Just <laughs> hey. uh, but you just look at it and think... I mean, look... Again, I know it is a bit like barking at thunder, isn't it? But you can just see the kind of it's that the just God, it's fucking easy being a Tory, isn't it? Yeah, like the thing is as well. I don't want journalists to let Labour off the hook. I've seen plenty of Labour MPs um, scrutinised over the years, and I often think that that it's a really good thing that they're scrutinised, you know. Um, I'll give an example of that. An example is um, Barry Gardner sending out, like, a, t- a, a praising Modi, and he was scrutinised about that. And I think that's really good. And Modi really, um, is the leader of India, of course. Yeah, and uh, not good. And mm. I and that's that's good. I think that's, that's good, that's positive. I also think, you know, um, Labour are putting out lots and lots and lots of policies and it's important as a society we're all you know connected we all engage in we're all like in a collective in Britain and I think it's important that the the media does look at those policies and scrutinize them and say well will this work will it benefit who will it not benefit that's really really important and if it doesn't work I think it's important that we understand we know that so I'm not asking for the BBC to or any other media outlet for that matter, to let Labour off the hook. I just want some consistency. And and 
if not consistency, I would settle for just not such an extreme disparity. Mm. Like it is actually a joke the way that the two parties are treated. The disparity between how they're treated is just is a joke. It's an embarrassment. And I, you know, I'm a we're both journalists. We've both been journalists for sort of No, no, we're months. activists. No, 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 we're not journalists at all. So the uh, British press uh, splashing front page pro-Tory propaganda fed by uh, the Tory hierarchy uh, sent to millions of homes. That's not activism, that's journalism. We're, we're, but, sorry, that, that's, that's real journalism. We, on the other hand, the few isolated commentators who are even vaguely sympathetic to the main opposition party, we're not journalists, we're interlopers, we're activists. That's bitter sarcasm, by the way, for everyone's benefit. <laughs> well, I think that we have interloped into the journalism industry for a long time and we both know that that journalists are like how you know a lot of journalists are like how dare you sully our great industry we are tell us the truth we are objective and i often think well how are you not embarrassed by this and sometimes i do challenge um my colleagues in the journalism industry and none of them can really bring themselves to admit that there isn't a fantastic inconsistency between the way that the two parties are treated because it would make them look utterly credulous mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I wish that journalists themselves would argue for more equitable treatment between Tories and Labour because um, it's it's a humiliation for their industry and also it's eroding public trust in journalism, which is already a really serious problem. Uh, So the climate debate... Um, snoring sound effects. <laughs> Look, I... So this was Channel 4 News and only Farage and Boris Johnson didn't turn up and they were replaced by these ice blocks. Can you imagine Nigel Farage <laughs> doing a climate debate? What would he say? Um, probably just lots of xenophobic stuff. Yeah, he, he'd be like, a wind, wind turbine costs £10,000 sterling. That's a reference to the fact that Nigel Farage always says sterling instead of pounds, which is a weird tick. Anyway... I, Owen will testify, I'm the sort of person who, like, can't stop talking about climate change. I'm like, I'm a nerd. I lose sleep over it. I'm very panicked about it. I'm the sort of person that, you know, tries to orientate my life plans around a possible breakdown of society. What a a way to live. That's how Ellie's Ellie's always there just preparing for the uh, end of civilization. On an unrelated note, I'm on my third glass of wine. Um... So I'm not saying this as somebody who finds climate change boring. I find it urgent and frightening. But the, it was the the format of the debate was a real problem. It focused on the minutiae of policy. It focused on technology. Um, it spoke about climate in a very technocratic way. And actually, the truth of climate change is that it's an issue of political will. It was James Hansen in the 1980s who gave a um speech to i want to say the senate in the u.s i can't remember exactly might not be google that while i'm talking google just bloody google you lazy so-and-so i actually insult the audience i was instructing you to google it owen oh what's it called sorry that was (laughs) james hansen climate change when he gave the anyway so we've known about anyway that all of of this is to say we didn't do umbop he did not um but we're all gonna die from climate change (laughs) anyway senate it might, I'm just asking, anyway. The, oh, yeah, he did a U.S. Senate committee testimony. He was invited to testify before the U.S. Senate uh, Committee on Energy and Natural Resources on June 23rd, 1988. Yeah. And he and testified that global warming has reached a level such as that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship between the greenhouse effect and observed warming. It is already happening 
now. So basically that's, you know, that's kind of considered like the seminal moment when it, it was like, this is real, this is happening and we're doing it. And we've known about, so we've known about that for, you know, over 30 years. And the reason that we're in, we're in such catastrophe now where we're having to think about the, all of these kind of extreme measures is because lots of rich and powerful people didn't really want things to change because they enjoyed things just the way they were. So they used the power that they had to keep things the same. And that's, I think, what the climate change uh, debate should have focused on. We know that like ExxonMobil, for example, covered up evidence of climate change and invested tens of millions of dollars in climate-denying think tanks. We know that Shell at the moment is um, in- engaging in a kind of essentially a propaganda campaign to make itself appear more palatable to millennials. Uh, BBC presenters are paid by Shell to do their advertising, just on the last point. Um, so, you know, climate change is an issue of politics. And it is an al- also, it's a right-wing issue in the sense that Climate change is being brought about and it's also denied almost exclusively by the right. So it can't be talked about as a, a sort of neutral issue that um, that is just about how many trees we plant or, you know, like whether this squirrel has died or that hedgehog remains alive. Squirrels? Who who kills squirrels? Yeah, who, who's got a... <laughs> well, let's not go into that. Um, just speed. carry on. I got distracted... I got distracted because I got a text from... Oh, look at me, name-dropping in, really cool. No, actually, people. genuinely, editors, can you cut that out? Because that makes me sound like a twat. No, probably, don't. He will probably wouldn't appreciate that. Don't cut it out. No, please do. No, but don't cut it out. No, please do. But, yeah, but absolutely no circumstances <laughs> cut this out. I'm serious, though, please do. Yeah, okay, but, but genuinely, I withdraw my consent for this podcast if you don't <laughs> no. cut that out. Okay, coming on. Also, cunt. There, you have to cut it out now. Um, just cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah, just just put that bit in. <laughs> la 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 la. Uh, anyway. You can cut out who she said it was, and then keep this in because it might be vaguely amusing if it's just beeped out. And then yeah, beep no that knows. out. Beep it out, and then maybe beep out the bit where I say the z word as well. No, don't keep that in. So everyone knows what a horrible, profane <laughs> person she is. <laughs> but just quickly, so what Labour did like, in terms of the climate crisis, because. It often is made to be, you know, kind of abstract and often bogged down in tedious jargon and all the rest of it. And what Labour tried to do, and, you know, I think you've always been there demanding they'd be more ambitious than they've often been, but it's to link it, a just transit, a just, a just translation, oh my God, a just transition means that you actually talk about it in a way that isn't about sacrifice and misery and all the rest of it, but about improving people's living standards. You create hundreds of thousands of skilled jobs in renewable energy, the mass insulation of homes, which takes on fuel poverty as well as the climate crisis, uh, whether it be uh, having transport that's affordable and amazing, and you know whether it be instead of you know it, it being cheaper to get a flight internally to Scotland, you can get a train there quickly and, and all the rest. And uh, also, it, you know, it's it's comfortable. You know, you go to European countries like stepping into the future, use their trains, buses, bloody buses. Oh, I'm obsessed with buses. You know, outside of London, buses. Bloody are, buses. Blo- there are people sitting, I'm sure, listening on buses right now. And your bus is crap, admit it. The, the buses are, you know, obviously rip off. Uh, lots of bus routes have gone. People have to use cars instead. That's bad, particularly if you're a low-income family. So all of this, isn't it? It's about cleaner air. People, you know... People th- die People die of air pollution. More than tobacco. In, in London as well. More than tobacco globally. And of course, a, for the first time the other week, a working class young lady 
uh, in Lewisham, wasn't it? Yeah, young woman, young lady, good grief. A working class young woman uh, was on a death certificate of uh, partly because of death pollution. So, yeah, I mean, what they're talking about, Labour, then, is is, is trying to link it, aren't they, to, uh, you know... To life in general, basically. Because it is, it is about everything it's not it's not a kind of an isolated issue on its own and i think that was like the floor of this debate actually was that first of all first of all it sort of tried to talk about climate as though it sort of exists separately from the rest of our lives and there were too many annoying gotcha moments where it was like oh so you're going to tell your voters that they can't eat meat anymore mm-hmm. and i just thought that was a little bit facile considering the importance of the issue and um i also don't understand why all of the leaders didn't put their petty differences aside to just spend the entire debate slagging off Boris Johnson. Yeah. I think that would have been just a much better use of time. Um, Yeah, they should focus on that. I mean, the other thing is, and this is a bit... Except for Joe Swinson, obviously, who... uh, it's probably going to go into coalition with him, so yeah, if I mean, she can, if she can, that's 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 definitely a, a dead cert. Um, I mean, I mean, again with the green. Look, I have a lot of time for a lot of greens, um, like Caroline Lucas. Uh, Sean Berry was there uh, representing the greens at the debate, and started by saying, "Everyone will imitate me, but if you really care about the climate emergency, vote green." And I don't, need, and it's not fair, right? At the end of the day, in a democracy, candidates put themselves forward and. They have every right to do so. That's how democracies work. But we do have the electoral system we have. I don't support our current electoral system, but that is what we have. And it will remain as such 100% as long as the Tories in power anyway. And the reality is, outside of Caroline Lucas's seat, if you vote for the Greens in Tory Labour marginals, that's where either it's close between the Tories and Labour, one or the other will win, then basically you're just letting the... Tory Brexiteer, anti-climate candidates win, and then a a Labour Party, whatever its flaws, which has the most radical environmental policies of any potential party of government, will lose in favour of a hard Brexit race at the bottom in terms of attacking environmental protections. Government will win, and saying that to people is is not ideal because you know you've got to offer a positive, inspiring reason to vote for Labour rather than oh not as shit as the Tories. But it's a different time from New Labour because actually you do the, the Greens and Labour politically are very very close in terms of their manifestos. So it's just very, it, it is just objectively true whether people don't like being told this that if you vote for Green, like take the Stroud, they're standing in Stroud. That's a time. I mean, the, the Labour only just won that seat last time, and if. If Labour lose by a few votes there and the Greens increase their percentage, is that worth it? And is that going to help the climate? Well, I mean, we're segueing away from the climate debate now, but if we um, if we talk about, if we're going to talk about that, um, I think the, the Green Party, and I say, you know, I'm, I'm the same. I, I, um, I'm not one of those Labour people who's hostile to the Green Party. I actually really valued the role that they played until Jeremy Corbyn became leader of, um, you know, out being kind of outflanking the Labour Party on the left. And I think a lot of the policies that the Labour Party have adopted um, under Jeremy Corbyn, they wouldn't have been able to without the Green Party making the political space for it first. So, you know, I, I, I've always been pretty warm towards the Green Party, but I think they've really kind of fucked up um, in the last couple of years. I think, um, as it has done with many people, I think Brexit has kind of sent them a bit mad. And I think a really good example of this is the Remain alliance that they entered into with um, the Lib Dems, where 
the Lib Dems and Plaid Cymru and the Green Party agreed that they wouldn't stand candidates against each other so that they would be a Remainer. But first of all, they will stand candidates against Remain Labour MPs. And second of all, that means that the Green Parties are going to allow the Lib Dems to contest seats against Labour. The, you know, the Lib Dems... I mean, Joe Swinson had, had nothing in the debate on climate. She had nothing to say. We're the least ambitious of any of the parties other than the Tories because they want uh, to reach the target by 2045. Yeah, exactly. And and then you've got, Labour has got this massive, comprehensive plan. So now the Green Party is in this bizarre situation where they're helping the Lib Dems to run against Labour MPs. Um, and, you know, ostensibly the aim of that was to stop Brexit. But then a couple of days after the nominations for candidates closed, um, so that means that they'd stood all down down their MPs but without kind of, in an, and when then in the position where they couldn't change their minds. Ed Davey came on TV and said that they, the Greens might, um, sorry, the Lib Dems might start making deals with the Tories. So I feel like the Greens have been kind of mugged off and they've also sort of um they kind of mugged themselves off there. yeah they, they have mugged themselves off and i you know and i i'm not one of those i think the labor party can be a little bit too um and historically it can be too hostile towards the greens and um a little bit too tribalist so i'm not saying this is somebody who isn't open to them but i just think They've sort of talked themselves out of a reason for existing in this election, which I don't. I don't say that with any joy because I think they're a really useful and positive force in British politics, and they have been for a while. So that's a that's a shame. But yeah, um, the other thing, just finally, basic. I think this is important. The, the, so Labour have done this policy, which is about uh, well, they're launching their regional manifestos today, um, and this is about. How you know, in terms of shifting away from an economy based on London and the South East, texting someone there, at least texting a famous person, we're not allowed to say who it is. Um, Shut up. But, um, but, um, um, Ellie May O'Hagan, oh, I'm so Welsh, Ellie May O'Hagan. So, the, I mean, it's true that we have an economy which is obviously orientated towards London and the South East. And, you know, I don't, would Brexit have happened without that? You know, in terms of the massive disillusionment uh, that exists in this country, whether it be from Scotland and the rise of the SNP uh, to the rise of Plaid Cymru uh, and, and also just the general, you know, the, the general, uh, the kind of, the, the, the political shifts of the last few years are partly explained by the fact that outside of, I mean, look, I'm not saying this in a kind of London and South... London has some of the worst poverty in the country. We're in Islington right now, which is often like, oh, champagne socialist, but four in ten kids grow up in poverty here. And, you know, if you, the housing crisis, particularly acute in London, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still true that we have an economy geared, basically, for the affluent of London in Britain. And so trying to rebalance the economy away from that is really, really critical, not just for Labour, but just to heal the huge wounds that exist in British society? Well, Cymraeth dwi, mae'n wyr, dwi'n dod o Cymru, sut mae pawb yn Gymru, hen yma, neu pnawn yma, neu bora yma. Those allegations were never proven and I will continue to try and clear my name and you don't have those video recordings despite those claims. My size Bob Amsod yn feddwl dan i'n siarad am dan i'n nŵl pan dan i'n siarad Cymraeg 
Anyway. Um, Don't expose our little secrets about our little <laughs> affair, even if it is in Welsh. <laughs> Those memories will stay with me forever. Uh, so I'm going to, I'll speak from my experience as, um, as, as someone who comes from North Wales. Just, I, I think, um, you know, you, when you don't live in London, you are, I mean, most of the people listening to this probably, I would imagine don't live in London. So you will know what I mean. But like, when you, when you don't live in London and particularly when you come from a really small town, I mean, I come from Bangor in North Wales and I think the population is around 13,000 in Bangor you really do feel completely invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I mean, in Bangor is also in terms of its transport links is fairly cut off. I mean, it takes me three and a half hours to travel between London and Bangor and it costs a hundred pounds for a ticket. Um, and you know, even little things like when bands go on tour, they never come to your part of the country. So in, in every conceivable way, you are constantly reminded that you, that you don't matter. And then of course in Wales, you have things like the quarter of the population is living in poverty. So in, you know, materially, culturally, socially, you are marginalized, you are ignored. Um, so I do think it is completely, uh, um, explicable that, uh, I mean, actually, Bangor did vote Remain for reasons I won't go into here, but um, it is completely explicable that places like that voted Brexit because obviously the big selling point of Brexit was A, you got to shake shit up a little bit, um, i.e. you got to be noticed, and B, you got to take back control. And, you know, one of the things that like towns like Bangor has experienced is a kind of decline under austerity. I mean, it was never that great before, and then it, you know, experienced a decline under austerity. And um, there's a sense of a lack of agency that you kind of happens without you really having much control over it. And so um, I think regional manifestos is a, a great idea. I would say that um, I've noticed that uh, the main parties, Tories and Labour, when they're talking about, up until now, when they've spoken about their regional offers, they they kind of just said, you know, all that stuff we promised in England, well, we'll give that to you as well, which kind of isn't really enough because I think um, speaking about, speaking to the issues that directly affect specific regions is much more important. Um, And also it's very noticeable to me that when um, party leaders, British party leaders as opposed to Scottish, Welsh, et cetera, when when they're talking to voters, that they are implicitly talking to English voters about English issues. I think often England and Britain is kind of spoken about interchangeably in our political discourse, which if you don't want to make Welsh and Scottish people feel alienated, is probably not good. And I think the rise of the SNP in Scotland shows that that does have consequences. And we'll see what happens with Wales. Finally, what do you want Labour to do? 13 days left now, innit? When? When? Um, I, well, I think it's strategically they need to uh, win back the Leave voters. Um, You know, I think a lot of Leave voters are tempted by the get Brexit done thing. And I think Labour needs to appeal to them in terms of uh, talking more broadly about the kind of country that we want to live in and public services and so on and so on. Um, I would disagree with some people who are now saying that the fact that Labour is losing Leave voters uh, shows that they should never have moved a bit more Remainy. Mm-hmm. I disagree with that because I think that Labour's coalition has always been Remain and Leave voters, and that's very difficult for them. 
Um, and they were kind of damned if they didn't kind of, and damned if they didn't. And I think they picked the right decision because actually I think the Remain voters are much more attached to Remain and much more willing to punish Labour than the Leave voters. So I think winning the Remain voters back first, which they have, to some extent, was the right decision. And now they're trying to win back the Leave voters. Because you had to bring win back the Remain flank first because Labour plummeted them, the Lib Dems could overtake them before you can try and win back others' voters as well. Yeah, exactly. How are you feeling generally at the moment? Yeah, I just, I'm tired because, you know, fighting all the time, particularly when you're kind of a lone voice in a media ecosystem dominated by people are so hostile is, is tough. But, you know, we're a movement. We're just uh, one, two little parts of it. And uh, we just got, we just got a, to quote the famous esteemed wise philosopher, I'm going to paraphrase Cheryl Tweedy, we've got to fight, 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 fight for this socialism. Yeah. That is basically word for word what she said. Yeah, I mean, that's what the song was about. People didn't realise that. I'm exhausted as well. Yeah, I was going to say, how are you feeling? Exhausted, and I also am drinking a lot. (laughs) I'm basically balancing my life. My life is just um, uh, coffee, alcohol and takeaway at the moment. (laughs) Um, It is completely exhausting being very much in the thick of it. and I think, I don't know about you, but I'm just very emotionally exhausted as well because every single every single development, no matter how small and inconsequential to the kind of average Joe is like when you're very invested in the campaign is mm-hmm. can really like make or break your day. And so it, I sort of feel like I'm on a roller coaster of emotion and my poor loved ones have really not had much... Yeah, love so. or attention or affection because by the time it gets to the end of the day I just can't I can't um, offer anything I just but we got to do this so everyone have hope have optimism have determination we're up against a formidable machine but the polls have shifted not good enough but I have to keep fighting and have that hope and optimism and courage yeah you know me I hate hope I love a bit of despair I hate hope But I couldn't understand why everybody was so upset when the big YouGov poll, the MRP poll, which for those of you not in the know is the is the big poll that does constituency projections. It predicted a a 68 seat majority for the Tories. Is that right? And I, I guess I can understand why people were upset about that on the surface. But it also showed that lots of the seats were, you know, had only two or three points in them. And that actually... Some of them, like Kensington, had kind of moved back to Labour when people originally thought Kensington would go to the Dems. So to me, the, it showed, you know, and it, it it was released much earlier in the campaign mm. than the one in 2017. So to me, it, it showed that there is a path for Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister. So I don't know why people were so despairing about that, because it it kind of communicated to me that if we keep fighting and we keep going, there is we can do this. And you know, so yeah, there is there is a way it can be done. Thank you very much, Shelley Merhagen. Thank you. Lots of love, everyone. Bye. Election Daily is produced by the cheerful team, including Jeff Lloyd, Emma Corsham, Joe Kenyon, and Joel Pierce, with music from Pete Frazier. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 